And I had just been thinking that uh, Susan Strange needed a bit more talking up than she'd had recently. A uh, couple of points about her. First, of course, uh, reviving silenced international voices. Um, Susan was not a silent voice. Mm. She spoke frequently, <laughs> <laughs> loudly, <laughs> robustly, and she was listened to, <laughs> which was also very important. She was, however, a truly a global thinker. Uh, her fame did not come from being a feminist. It came from something much rarer and from the perspective of the social sciences, arguably more valuable. Uh, she was a theorist. Uh, she was a theorist who invented analytical categories, and they were categories that revealed truth, sometimes unexpected truths. Uh, she was also a scientist in the meaning of that term as understood and expounded by Imre Lakatosh, that the theories, her theories when applied, led to new questions, which produced new theories. Uh, so theories, her theories were, in his language, progressive, um, which marked her, of course, as a proper scientist in Lakatosh's terms. I'll come to her inventions in a moment. The third point I'd like to make is that her feminism was unconventional. Uh, she made no special claims for women and no special claims for being one, except that she'd produced six children while inventing the central theoretical pillars of IPE. Uh, the baronial uh, structure of the discipline as it existed in the 50s and 60s, she named it as such, uh, and she deplored it, but not because it excluded women, which it did, but because it was ideologically uh, and theoretically conservative, and it shift, uh, stifled theoretical development and policy innovation. Her world was the world of public policy on a grand scale, global public policy, and the theoretical understandings or underpinnings of contemporary policy. And she considered the new feminism of the 1970s to be something in the nature of a cottage industry. I'll come back to her feminism at the end of uh, my remarks. Uh, let me now turn to her inventions. These have to be seen in the context of her science, international political economy, which is a consideration of how hierarchical structures of power affect horizontal workings of the market. So hierarchical structures of power, vertical structures of power on the operations of the horizontal market. In this context, she invented two sets of analytical categories which have become standard tools in the discipline used constantly. The one is structural power. That is, power which is not in the hands of the wielder, but in the system surrounding the wielder. The general concept is familiar. Susan's contribution was to identify four sources of structural power in the international economy. These were security, production, finance, and knowledge. Each of this was a structure, it quotes, really a tacit set of bargains uh, that states are actually embedded in. 
And these structures become a resource of power by framing the rules of the game in favor of one or other actor. The relevant power, she always argued, is not um, the particular material capacity, whether you had nuclear power. That wasn't, that wasn't what was it. The relevant power of the actor is the power to change or maintain the structures. That was, that was how she defined power and what she considered to be real power in, international, in the international economy and in international relations generally. An example, a familiar example to us, would be the European security architecture, a central aspect of which is the NATO alliance, whose central core is that it commits the United States to coming to the aid of the Europeans if they are attacked, essentially, by Russia. Now, the Europeans can fool around with this architecture. They can elaborate this architecture a bit. They can, for example, as they have done, brought the Central Europeans into this architecture via membership of the European community, which has committed them to sorting out their border disputes. You cannot become a member of the European community unless you've sorted out your borders. So that creates a big incentive, sort out your borders, and that gives the European Union members, particularly the members of the main members of the Council, power vis-a-vis the countries of Central Europe. Um, but they can't do, but they can't fool around with the central nexus. They can't do much about the American commitment which is the heart of the alliance. They can't replace it, they are stuck with it. Only the United States can alter that central relationship or central bargain. Only the United States can alter the bargain, and that means it's the United States that has the power in relationship to the European security architecture. So this was structural power. Knowledge power would have been she never developed this very much, and it's considered one of the weaknesses of the theory, but knowledge power would, I suppose, to her have been, what she would have meant by that is, who is doing the inventions? Who, where is the technology being invented? Where is it being developed? Yes, that would be knowledge power, and that would be a structure that an actor could call on as a resource. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Now the second, uh, the second is the concept of the top currency. She actually had a, a whole theory about different currencies and their role. But to me, the really important idea was this idea of the top currency, and this was uh, uh, one of Susan Strange's most powerful analytical tools. A top currency is a favored currency which is held because of inherent appeal. That appeal can come from any number of things. Easy to trade, keeps its value, people believe in the strength and stability of the home economy. But the important thing about it is that people hold it. Institutions hold it. Pension funds hold it. Banks hold it. And states hold it. They hold it in all kinds of situations. Now, Strange not only argued that there were such currencies, which is obvious, but that they underpinned the stability of the international economy as a whole. And that that was 
from the point of view of the relationship between power politics and markets, that was absolutely critical, that a top currency underpinned the stability of the international economy. They did this in two ways. Basically, they provided predictability and they provided liquidity. Predictability is terribly important because you can plan. Liquidity vital because it's what you use to create new things. And uh, so, top currency. Now, a top currency country enjoys a lot of benefits as a top currency. It can hold deficits longer and it can hold larger deficits than its competitors. Today, for example, the United States owes, it holds a debt of $60,000 for each citizen. $60,000 for each citizen. Britain holds $30,000 equivalent for each citizen. But whereas the pound is very sensitive to devaluations, the dollar is not. It's the federal authorities who determine the value of the dollar. They do move it up and down. Not the holders of it. It's not the holders of the dollar. Whereas the holders of the pound are the ones who shift the pound around. But not the holders of the dollar. Uh, that means it has an enormous play in terms of policy. It can't be forced into, into doing things that it would prefer not to do. But the top currency, and this was Susan's second big insight about top currencies, that the top currency faced costs. Where do these costs come from? Basically, the key task for a top currency is to provide liquidity in the system. But to do so, the dominant economy must be prepared to run trade or current account deficits. It must be prepared to go into debt. Over time, these deficits will generate costs, primarily job losses due to rising imports among low and medium skilled workers, which in turn leads to political demands for corrections, ideally, in her terms, for welfare provisions, but for corrections. As was the case with Britain and Sterling, where this insight first came to her in the great work she did, first great work on uh, Britain and Sterling, she argued that the United States could only run the world's top currency successfully if it cushioned marginal or vulnerable domestic groups from the locations that they would face. This is the key political cost of running an international currency. And she criticized the United States repeatedly for trying to evade this cost and for destabilizing the world economy as a result. In other words, she identified the major destabilization periods in the world economy when America was top dollar, <coughs> still is top dollar, with its continuous efforts to evade the costs. Always the rule, the cardinal rule was that the Domestic economies of leading currencies must always be in sync with the international economy as the stability, uh, to guarantee stability. 
Uh, the different ways that the United States tried to evade this cost today by tariff protectionism is now a standard subject of economic analysis. Um, I particularly always liked the top currency idea, especially because it explained to me why Germany would stick to the European Union. When Germany was united, there was this tremendous fear that Germany could now opt out. It was strong enough, it didn't need the union around it. And I thought, no, nope, Susan can tell anyone why they won't go. Because? <laughs> because within the union, of course, the mark is a top currency. And Germany, during the uh, uh, monetary movement in the 1970s and 80s, was always being forced into revaluation, higher and higher and higher value, which was, of course, creating costs for them. That's a cost. The world deflates, but the top currency inflates. Mm. Uh, by going into the European Union, or by creating the euro, what Germany has done is, of course, spread those costs. Mm? It's others that bear those costs within the Union and not Germany, which is why, of course, it's so Euro, uh, so Euro loyal. Back to her feminism now. Uh, she accepted the ideal standard of her discipline, and she worked up to it. In IPE, what this meant was uncovering basic forces in the workings of the international economy. In feminist terms, we might call this the honorable man strategy. That's a strategy where you aim to be accepted as an equal or even a superior amongst those that she recognized as her peers. There are different ways to understand the honorable man strategy, and we might take this up in the discussion. But this was, I think, Susan's understanding of what she was doing. At the same time, she was not reluctant to let it be known that she'd had six children. And she actually made a point of it in her address, presidential address to the International Asso uh, Studies Association where it caused something of a fracas. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, it was taken as a challenge. And I think it was intended as a challenge. <laughs> now, what her message was, what she said at the end of her remarks at the, at the presidential address when she brought to the attention of the audience that she had had six children, um, was don't be put off by convention, go for it, don't fall back on feminist whinging. But the message of the overall performance was to be a super performer on all fronts. <laughs> I think this makes her a modern feminist because I think that that's the message that we're, <laughs> that we're getting from women today. <laughs> be super on all fronts. Uh, but I would say certainly if one takes uh, Susan as the model for it, it's a very hard act. <laughs> it's a very hard act to follow. <laughs> 